Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, everybody. The only podcast in human history where two people talk about comic books. And hey, not just two people, two brothers, two comedian-ish brothers. I'm one of the two brothers. My name is Will Hines. I'm the other brother, Kevin Hines. And uh, yeah, like I uh, said, we are comedian-ish, uh, performers and teachers from the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. We have a pretty reliably dry wit. Ask any of our friends. Mm-hmm. And um, and we also are for real legit brothers, and we've loved yeah. comic books our whole lives. And on this podcast, we talk about comic books either that we love or that we want to learn more about. Yeah, no need to um, uh, clarify the brothers. That's uh, 100%. That's a slam dunk. Uh, you could argue... Uh, that we are fans of comic books, you could argue that we are That's subjective. Comedians. Yeah, whether whether we whether we are funny or not, or whether comedians or not, or whether we're real fans or not of comics. Yeah, that's up for debate. I saw someone post um, or someone re- retweeted an image of Peter Parker from Ultimate Spider-Man, mm-hmm. uh, which was a run that Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley began, and it basically just said like, if this is what you think Peter Parker looks like, you're not a real Spider-Man fan. The person who was retweeting was like, this is just a garbage take. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's very funny to be like, oh, if you loved this very popular Spider-Man series that got a lot of people into Spider-Man, you're not a real fan. And uh, that's obnoxious. It's a, it is kind of a thing in um, in fandom um, yeah. of anything, whether it's comics or music or TV shows, when one fan tells another what it is to be a real fan, like authenticity is always something that people want to argue about. Like this isn't a real, yeah, you know, Marvel Comics fan or whatever, and it's like, you know what? All those arguments are BS, and they almost always involve making it about the person who's angry just because yeah. they want more attention. It's like you can be a Spider-Man fan any which way you want. Yeah, if you're only a fan of Ben Riley, <laughs> then you're right. allowed. You're allowed to do that. And he's coming back soon, so you're in luck if that's who you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's same thing. It's sort of like, oh, you. I love I love Marvel superheroes. I've only seen the movies or never read the comics. It's like okay, that counts. It definitely counts. Oh my gosh, big time! Um, you don't need to read the comics. You don't need to read the novels. Like I consider myself a Star Wars fan, mm-hmm. but I don't know anyone who's a Star Wars fan that has read less than me. <laughs> it just feels like oh, I love yeah. Star Wars. What have you seen? I've seen the movies and read a couple books. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm a Star Wars fan. I've read every book, every comic book, mm-hmm, played every mm-hmm. game, and I'm like, yeah, the whole like, the cartoons, and I'm like, oh, maybe I hate Star Wars. It, it's almost just like a tone thing. Like if somebody is yeah. trying to make it about themselves and leave somebody out, it's like get out of here. Now yeah. there is something that's kind of more interesting, which is like, what does it take to make a story feel like a Spider-Man story? And and it's like. You don't have to follow whatever the discussion leads to, but it's like, well, I expect there to be something about responsibility. I expect there to be something about not giving up, you know, expect there to be some amount of joy in there. Uh, And again, these can all be broken for individual stories or whatever, but uh, that's, that stuff's kind of interesting to talk about. But then there's also the case of like, there's like a Spider-Man cartoon that my son watched for a while. That was like these two minute shorts. It was like Spider-Man teaming up with another superhero Mm -hmm fighting a villain and like learning a lesson about like, don't litter or whatever. Okay. Um, it wasn't really about responsibility. Well, like, like those it's are good, still Spider-Man it, stories. It's like, it's good still, guy, bad guy stuff. Yeah. Still a guy in that costume with webs. It's like, maybe that isn't like what drew 
you or me to Spider-Man, but mm -hmm. it's crazy to say like, that's not a real Spider-Man story. This story about Spider-Man and Thor cleaning up the park. Yeah. It's, like, it's, yeah, just, it's, it's, it's fine. It's uh, just no fun when somebody tries to harsh somebody else's party. It's like, if somebody's enjoying something, who are you to go in and be like, actually, you're not allowed to enjoy that. You're not supposed to be enjoying this right now. <laughs> Here's one thing I would say though, Will, if you say you're a fan of Marvel comic books, mm-hmm and you started reading in like the 80s, and you did not read the early Claremont comics, you're not a real fan. <laughs> That's true. It's something you and I have always said. <laughs> We've always stood by. It's like, yeah. you haven't read those early Claremont X-Men. It's like, what? You're, you're a fake fan. You're a fake fan. You're, you're a poser. 100%. And you're an idiot. You and I know this because we are diehard Claremont die fans. Diehard Chris Claremont fans. We are completists. We've read... Uh, all those early issues <laughs> starting from a month ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, Kevin is, see, this is an example of our dry wit. Yeah. Well, Kevin, you so what if we're you doing, weren't paying attention, you didn't laugh, <laughs> but if you've paid a lot of attention, you probably smirked. I, this, you probably, I just caught you smirking at this podcast and uh, I gotcha. So this is an episode of mutants in mailbag where Kevin and I go over some comics that we had overlooked, uh, which is Chris yeah. Claremont's, early X-Men, which yeah. is insane to have overlooked it. And we also it go over email. so funny. We overlooked the most popular comic book at the time. And since. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the, if not the most popular Marvel comic of all time. Whoops, we missed it. Yeah, like even if you for some reason did not enjoy it, which I think would be impossible because there's such good comics. Yeah. But like, even if you didn't, if you're a fan of Marvel, like there's such an integral part of the fabric of the Marvel universe that it's nuts to, it would, it would literally be like not reading any Spider-Man, but calling yourself a Marvel comics fan would be like, well, that's kind of weird. Like you're missing one of the main chapters. Imagine if we weren't aware of them. Like we're just like, Oh, those guys that guest started secret wars. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. If they did a title about those guys. Like, and they did do a title. It was hugely popular. Huh? I mean, good for them. Good for them. Little, little, upstarts. I mean, they're no, uh, uh, they're no dazzler, but uh, <laughs> she's a mutant too. That's a bad example. Uh, anyway, they're yeah. no wrecking crew. So now, those guys got some meat to crew. their bones. Um, pile driver, bulldozer. Uh, forget the other two. <laughs> the wrecker um, and another one. Okay, so Thunderball. Oh, thank you. So yeah, Kevin and I are making up for lost time and reading these old uh, Claremont X-Men and they're really terrific. We are having such a good time. I'm so glad that, I mean, it's dumb that we never done it before, but yeah. we're, we're getting to enjoy it now. And so we'll, we'll this is another over. one of, this is another one of those things where we read comics that everyone loves and our takeaway is these are good comics. Yeah. I liked these comics so right away that I felt so dumb. I guess I'm saying if you don't have time to listen to today's podcast and you're, you're never going to get around to it and you've only listened this far and you're like, I think I can't listen anymore. Mm -hmm. Just so you know, our takeaway is good. Yeah, these are good. Um, today we're doing four issues of the X-Men, 118, 119, 120, and 121. That's the Uncanny X-Men. Mm -hmm. uh, written and drawn by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. we got two issues in Japan, two issues in Canada. And uh, they're really fun, Kevin. What, what was your take on today's issues? Yeah, I like them. They're really, they're, they are fun. It, the X-Men are sort of in this sort of world jaunt going on. They got kidnapped by a circus and then from the circus <laughs> got stolen by Magneto. And yeah. then ended up in the savage land and are just like they've it's been like a year since they've been home. They basically just got kidnapped by the circus and now they're they've just been trying to get home ever since. Yeah. And it's a lot of and fun. They're, they're also separated, right? Jean Grey has been separated from the group. Professor X is in space, basically uh falling in love. 
Yeah. And like today's comics, they would just like constantly be in contact with Gene and Professor X. So they would just like telepathy them and be like, oh, they're in the Savage Land. Let's go pick them up. Mm -hmm. Or they would have like some cell phone that gets service in the Savage Land anyway. And they would yeah. just call. But because like like telepathy has not been pushed to that level in Marvel Comics and technology did not exist to this level. Yeah. They just have they have this is this during these four issues is the first time they even call home. It's the first yeah. chance they've had to like call and be like, hey, is anyone there? It was just like part of the world that you could pretty easily be away from a phone. And it's like, well, there's no way to get in touch with the people that I want to until yeah. whenever. Uh, and so that's sort of fun. And it also kind of creates this like sort of like chance for the X-Men to sort of travel around, get into trouble and do all this stuff. It reminds me weirdly of the Swamp Thing arc where he travels to all the planets and stuff. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I love that. Where it's like, oh, the Swamp Thing is about this guy in the swamp doing his like horror. He's in Louisiana and he's got yeah. like, you know, kind of like Southern mystic stuff going on. Oh, but he's also going to be on Pluto for a while. And yeah, then, then there's like a 12-issue exploration of the solar system or something. I forget <laughs> if it was 12 issues or not. It's like, oh, that's weird, but also feels like just a thing you do in comics every now and then. So it's like road trip is a thing you do in comic books. Yep. Uh, uh, Ed Brubaker did a run on Catwoman, and he did like a run where Catwoman just visited all the D.C. cities. Because, uh, you know, she's in Gotham, but it's like, oh, let's take her to Metropolis and St. Roque and Central City and yeah. all these other places. And it's like, oh, that's fun. Yeah. Uh, um, they're cool places. Uh, in Marvel Universe, there aren't fictional cities, so they're visiting real places like the Savage Lands. <laughs> so very, very high level. What we have in these issues, because I want to start saying something about them in general. Mm, we got two issues. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Kevin has no observations. We have um, two issues where they're in Japan and there's like an enemy... Uh, Moses Magnum, I think, which is like a Tony Stark-ish guy yeah. who's like causing earthquakes and, and mayhem and stuff. And they have to team up with their former teammate of one issue, Sunfire. Yeah. And they do that for two issues. And then there's two issues where they go to Canada um, and they the superhero team Alpha Flight, the Canadian government-sponsored superhero team Alpha Flight, created by Canadian artist John Byrne. Right. Um uh, wants Wolverine back. Yeah. And so they have to, they, so there's a two issue fight with the X-Men about that. The Canadian government famous for spending billions on yes. their, under uh, John Burns watch, the Canadian government has an unlimited budget for superhero development. Like the likes of which you cannot imagine. It's so <laughs> funny to think about the Canadian government. First of all, being the height of technology, like yeah, yeah. way beyond like America, England, Germany and just like being so aggressive about it. Like if there were really a Canadian superhero team, it would be like a really good hearted park ranger, you know, <laughs> like a negotiator who just wanted everybody to get along. Uh, and it would an be just drunk like, hockey it, fan. It still would have puck. That would basically be the whole team. Puck I bought. Uh, though he's not in it at this point yet. Yeah. It's like in, in this, at this time in the Marvel universe, like shield exists, I guess, which is a huge budgeted thing, but like the yeah. Avengers aren't a government thing. Right. They're not funded by the government. So it's not like the U S has their own team of superheroes that they funded. They just happen to have a bunch of the superheroes Canadian government there. is way ahead of the American government in superhero spending in this X-Men universe. Way yeah. ahead. Way, way, way ahead. Good um, for them. Good for them. Uh, you want to talk about the Sunfire two issues first? Mm -hmm. I first of all, I like Sunfire. 
Me too. I'm, you know, for someone who doesn't have a ton of real estate in these stories, I'm like, I kind of want more Sunfire. So his characteristic basically is that he's always angry, right? He's, furious, he's always yeah. just like, you know, on behalf of Japan, he's like, I can do it alone. I don't need these other people. You know, pride maxed out to 100. I think he'd be so fun on this team. Yeah, especially uh, as Wolverine calms down a little bit. Like, he's a for real hothead. Like, Wolverine's just sort of a grump. That's- yeah, a murderous grump, but a grump nonetheless. Yeah, sure. And, and um, but, but Sunfire does seem to permanently be in, yeah. oh, oh, you, you're saying something to me? You want to fight about it? <laughs> I think he is on the current X-Men team. Uh, I can't ever keep track of that. And I'm reading it, uh, but it's hard to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I uh, there's something about Sunfire. He just like, I mean, Fire is also just a fun power, but also he's a fun character. He's fun with the way he interacts with everybody. And this is a Dave Cockrum designed costume, right? Yeah. Any Dave I, I Cockrum so. designed costume, you know, that's 90, look, I would say 95% sure. For us, Cockrum that's so, it. so, so sure. I'll look it up while, while you say something. If, if not Cockrum, almost definitely Ditko. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we always attribute everything to Steve Ditko. It's a running gag from uh, uh, our Fantastic Four season, I believe. Keep up, everybody. Keep up. Uh, yeah. So in this, the X-Men were like on a boat. Nope. Like Roy, Roy the- Thomas and Don Heck. Oh, good for them. Way so earlier. He pre- so he preceded the X-Men. He, he preceded, preceded the, the X-Men. X-Men. So they, they just used him for an issue. Okay. Um. So, yeah. So the X-Men were like on this, this like, uh, uh, I don't know, some Japanese ship that picked them up in the, in the Arctic. Uh, gave them all green sweaters, and now it's taking the them. The green sweaters, I love how they're all in matching green sweaters. Like Storm in the green sweater really looks out of place, but it's I kind of dig it. It's like Nightcrawler in his costume, Wolverine in his tank top t-shirt, and everybody else in these green sweaters. They look like uh, they're in um, the Wes Anderson movie, The um, Light, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou or whatever. Oh, man, that would have been great if they could all teleport and have metal skin. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's very funny. They get to Japan and it basically feels like Hiroshima a little bit like it's a yeah, firestorm going on. There's jets flying around. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's they're just they're dropped in the middle of a hellscape. The storm is so big that storm herself cannot really control it. She can only sort of mitigate it a little bit. Um, yeah. They don't they don't know what's happened. Um the X-Men want to help. What has happened is a guy named, am I getting his name right? Magnus Mag. Wait, it's either Magnum Moses or Moses Magnum. I can, I can't. Moses Magnum, I think is right. And he is um, like a Tony Stark, like arms dealer who went through some Marvel comics, the accident where he now has superpowers and he's creating earthquakes to hold all of Japan. But he's like, hostage. yeah, I, I think he gets brought back either in the Thunderbolts or Avengers under Kurt Busiek. That's the only time I've ever seen him other than this story. Uh, he seems like a big deal. <laughs> he's established like he's a really big character in the current Marvel continuity. Like if I just read this issue, which I yeah. did, I've only just read this issue. It's like, oh, he's like, he's a big deal. But I think he's a late 70s guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. He definitely precedes this story. Uh, the X-Men are mostly just trying to get to Sunfire's house. Uh, but like along the way, it's it's referenced in captions that they help out a little bit. But we don't really yeah. see that. Uh, it's funny that they, you know, they they... Well, I was going to say the new X-Men overlap with Sunfire for one issue. But as I just looked up, I guess there is a longer history of Sunfire and the X-Men. So maybe it makes sense for Cyclops to be like, we got to get to Sunfire because he's yeah. been about him longer. Yeah. Um, but it's that, it's that Marvel Comics thing where it's like, oh, you were on the team for one issue. 
200 issues later, we might call that, call that into play. Yeah. I mean, uh, this sort of instant kinship is also on display because Wolverine meets uh, Mariko mm. and falls in love with her in half a panel. Yeah. Half a panel. Love in half a panel. Uh, but I, he's, I, last I love- issue, he was still uh, anguished over the loss of Jean Grey. Uh, and he is way over it now. But his romance with Mariko, I think, is one of my favorite things about the X-Men uh, and his love affair with Japan. And yeah. I, li- I-, I like it when when creators sort of put their fascination with really whatever subject into the stories they're writing. And we get a lot of Ireland, Canada, and Japan in X-Men comics. Uh, Wolverine speaks fluent Japanese. What a fun reveal. Yeah. He's just reading he's just reading Japanese out of a newspaper. Cyclops is like, I didn't know you read Japanese. And Wolverine's, I think, kind of jerk answer is you never asked, Bub, but it's like, am I supposed to just ask random questions about possible skills everybody has or yeah. I'm rude? I'm looking at that and Cyclops' response is uh, my mistake. Next time I'll know better. Like next time you'll know better to say, Hey, anyone here speak Japanese? Yeah, I think this is not on you, Cyclops. I think Wolverine's yeah. being a little unfair. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think Wolverine needed to tell him before. This is not a thing you need to list on your resume necessarily if you don't want to. But if someone's surprised by it, be like, oh, yeah, I lived here for a while. I think also, is this where we learn his name is Logan? Oh, I wonder. Uh, yeah, it might he, be. He, he says it as if it's like a secret to Mariko. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, he's in love with her. Uh, we have a little cutaway to... Um, Professor X in space while this is going on. But anyway, at some point, a bunch of robot dudes attack the X-Men <laughs> uh, mandroids. Which have been, they were in some Avengers story and now they're being used here. Yeah. Uh, there's a fun subplot where Colossus is just getting his butt kicked a lot. That's been going over a couple issues and it continues where he feels like he's not pulling his weight because he keeps getting like manhandled in these battles. And I think really what happens a lot of times in these stories is like, they're like, oh, we got to get Colossus out of here or this fight ends too fast. Right. Colossus or Storm, depending on the villain, could single-handedly take care of a lot of villains. So just like kind of plot-wise, you need to limit them a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, you just knock these characters away for a while so that you're left with like Banshee and Cyclops zapping them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and, Night, and Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler bamping around. Yeah. And then this, the fight always ends with, the one of the big guns getting back there and saying like, well, I'll just defeat them all. There is a, there is a feeling already. And I've said it before of like anything can happen. I feel like John Byrne and Chris Claremont are cocky in a way where they like, <laughs> don't mind doing big things, or maybe it's because the X-Men don't have a revered history at this point. So you could do things like Wolverine's just in love and this is his name. And you know what? He speaks Japanese. Uh, Professor X just abandoned the X-Men and shut off his phone line and he's in space dating a beautiful alien woman, Captain Kirk style. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of almost reckless. And it's like, oh, we'll just send them on a world tour for a year. Like, I, I kind of love it. I love the exciting feeling that anything can happen. I mean, it's definitely a benefit you have when it's one title, not like a family of titles, and they're not showing up in all these other books. You could take them off the grid for a year and it has no effect on right. Iron Man or Spider-Man right. or the Hulk. Uh, and you can just do the stories you want. It's it's. I, I talk about it a lot. I think it is the downside to a connected universe is that sometimes you are constrained by that universe where it's yeah. like, oh, you can't, 
you can't do that because like we've got plans for that character and this big event coming up. So you yeah. can't take them off the table or it's like, nah, you can't really have Wolverine retire because he's in three other books every month. So he can never, you can never retire him. You can take him out of your book, but that's all you can do. Uh, but at this point, none of that exists. Like they could kill Wolverine and it would be okay. Uh, yeah. It would have been a bad decision. Bad decision, but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have affected the rest of the Marvel Universe at this point. Um, uh, yeah, so they fight these mandroids, and that's like a fun fight. Um, uh, uh, it ends yeah. with them on an island, and Magnus like explodes it or something, right? Well, yeah, they they uh, they go to an island um, in the next in the second issue because uh, um, Moses is like. If you guys don't, I don't know what his thing is. Is he asking for money? Uh, oh, he has to be. He has to be declared ruler of Japan, or he will sink Japan. <laughs> I mean, it's such a big ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you know they're gonna say no. Like we can't. We just who's gonna say yes? Like yeah. who has the authority to just say you are the ruler of Japan? Like uh, they do so, have an emperor, but the emperor doesn't really have power over the government. Not at this know. point. Yeah, yeah. You missed your missed your chance for that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so the X Men go to his base because also like uh, the Iron Fist supporting cast is here for some reason, mm -hmm. uh, and so they've researched it all for the X Men and send the X Men. Oh yeah, and I love that. They go to find Sunfire, and Misty Knight is just there, and Cyclops is like, "What's what's Jean Grey's roommate doing here?" Never answered. It, and it's just like Chris Claremont wrote Iron Fist for a while and likes those characters. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so the X Men go to Moses's island. Um, and they have like a Cyclops-ish plan to get in that mostly is just like everybody rush in at the end of the day. There's a little more to it because like some of the characters tunnel in. But I don't yeah. understand why you couldn't just like have Storm drop them all in. Yeah. Um, sometimes they say a comment, they do this in the Canada battle where it's like, well, we can't have Storm be vulnerable. And if she's carrying one or two of us, she's temporarily vulnerable to attack. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of a BS. I mean, there's also times where it's like, oh, we can't, I can't, like Banshee can't lift two people. And then right. there's times where he does. And there's times where like Storm just with her winds carries everybody. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of like, it, it's arbitrary how much or how hard it is for them to lift people. Anyway, uh, so they have this plan like Cyclops, Colossus, and uh, Sunfire tunnel in and Wolverine tunnel in. Nightcrawler gets dropped in and Storm and Banshee fly in. Um and they sort of take down – their plan is to take down Magnum Moses. Moses Magnum. Moses Magnum. Who cares? Mm -hmm. uh, and he – you know, uh, there's a great sequence where Colossus gets almost knocked off the island. That's really beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he stops himself with his fingertips. Yeah, he, like, drags his hands across the ground and almost falls off the island. Uh, and then he kind of – then Colossus is fed up with losing and comes in and just, like, beats everyone up. Very fun. Easily. Easily. I like how many times he's saying by the white wolf, by the way. I feel like we get two of those an issue. <laughs> um, and then Banshee basically like, I don't know, he puts a lid on whatever Moses is doing so that it, he basically like puts his finger in the barrel of the gun. He does the equivalent of that. To like a volcano or something yeah. like that. So the base just explodes. <laughs> uh, and everybody got out, we are told, off panel. <laughs> yep. And then Sunfire sends a plane to rescue them. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Banshee loses his voice. They celebrate Christmas. Um, 
we're starting to get more like X-Men kind of family moments. Like Banshee goes to the hospital because he screamed so loud, metaphorically putting his voice as a stopper in the volcano that he's in the hospital. So when he checks out, there's nobody to pick him up and he's hurt. But when he gets home, they're all waiting for him with a Christmas celebration in Japan. And uh, they have a big sign, welcome home, Banshee. They're they're starting to hit the we're a family stuff more. Yeah, it's really sweet. It is a sweet moment just being like, hey, we're going to have a Christmas celebration, even though we're, you know, haven't been home in uh, six, seven months. There's also a fun epilogue with the guy who rented them a hoverboat from like 10 issues ago. Yeah. First of all, I love this guy because he didn't want to rent them a hoverboat. And it they explodes. made it seem like it was a, uh, a a bigoted thing, like he didn't like mutants. It explodes minutes later. Yes, after they rent it, he was absolutely right to not want to rent them his hoverboat. <laughs> I mean, it's and not your mutants; it's your superpowered characters who are going to get in a fight. Yeah, and then here he is again at the epilogue of this on his boat, and some off-panel bad guy I think kills him. Yeah, he sneaks onto this island to uh, uh, get revenge. Uh, for them for wrecking his hoverboat, which I'm not, I'm not all for revenge, but I got to imagine he put a lot of money to that hoverboat. <laughs> he really had a couple like canoes and like one motorboat. And he's like, you know what? Yeah. I'm getting a hoverboat. It's my business. They can't, they can't mess with it. And they wrecked it. And now he doesn't have it anymore. So he's met, this is a, a deserved revenge. And anyway, he goes to silent and then some mutant X creature uh, does something to him. Calls him a human I need your blood or something. Yeah. And we'll find out more about that someday. Someday. Uh, meanwhile, um, the X-Men are on a plane flying home from Japan. Yep. And they run into Alpha Flight, which I think this is the birth of Alpha Flight in this issue. Yeah, they got uh, name-checked the last time we saw... Uh, what, what's his name? The what Vindicator? They well, they don't call him Vindicator yet. It's like Captain Maple Leaf or something. Major Maple Leaf, maybe? Something like that. I forget. I mean, he's got a Maple Leaf on his costume. Great costume, by the way. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Alpha Flight like creates a big storm to like trick the X-Men and not trick, force the X-Men to land in Canada. Yeah. And then when they land in Canada, the guy who will eventually be Vindicator uh, is standing there going, hey, Wolverine, we want you back. And uh, uh, first of all, the X-Men's airplane looks cool. This airplane that like Sunfire put them on. Yeah. It's got like weird curved door pods it like feels like a ufo on the inside if you go a couple uh, pages in it's very oh interesting yeah. uh but anyway uh like the yeah. plane gets like blown up by a, a combination of sasquatch and vindicator and the x-men sneak off in a snowstorm um yes i'm looking up for so vindicator has also been called guardian yeah he's not that yet um hang on i'm looking him up uh, he gets, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. He gets confused with Captain Canuck, which is a hero that I now want to read about. Now that's like an that indie name. comic character. Um, all right, keep going. You, you, Kevin, take over the summary here. I'm trying to find this. Uh, yeah, I'm trying it's somewhere in the issue. They call him by a name and I just forget what it is. Um, yeah. So they go to the airport and they're, uh, uh, or they sneak out of the airport and they're like, I don't know. They're sneaking around the city or something trying to buy some clothes to disguise Storm, who looks like a weather goddess no matter where she goes. Okay, it's Major Maple Leaf and Weapon Alpha, he's also been called. Yeah, okay. I think think they call him Major Maple Leaf in this story, but I think he was Captain Alpha in the previous story. Okay. Copy. Anyway, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. None of that matters at all. Um, 
the alpha flight somehow tracks the mutants down and attacks and uh storm takes him out in an instant basically mm-hmm. uh, they're still mad at him because he accidentally hurt moira mctaggart um uh, yeah and so this guy just basically gets in a fight with storm and loses instantly and basically the alpha flight are like sneaking around the city trying to find the x-men and picking them off one by one uh and then some of them get captured Wolverine gets captured and Nightcrawler gets captured and the rest right. of them are like, let's go get our team. So it's funny. It's Alpha Flight. They're kind of bad guys here, right? They're sort of like the Canadian government is sort of like super aggressive and kind of like um, they want to drag Wolverine back against his wishes. I mean, the whole Wolverine thing is very interesting, right? Because he says, I quit the team. There's no resistance when he does that initially. And then it's sort of like they keep being like, you can't quit. We invested too much money in you. But there's no mention of like a contract or anything like that he had to do to pay off his, you know, adamantium bones or something. Yeah. So his joining this team is very, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what the contract situation is. I don't know what Wolverine knows them. <laughs> we don't know what he signed. But it seems like he doesn't know them anything. It seems like he could quit at any time. I will say that the brothers, the brothers Hines, we respect contracts. If Wolverine signed something, he's got to respect it. Play out the length of your contract. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you can demand a trade uh, to another team, but you know. But they just seem uh, like the you Alpha, can do about it. Alpha Flight seems like they really they play they play rough. Like they're not really worried if they like wreck buildings or hurt innocent people to get Wolverine back. Yeah, um, they're all just sort of like we were told to do this, so we're going to do it. We don't care. We're Canadians. We follow orders. Yeah, we're Canadians. What we're known for is being really powerful, taking you out ruthlessly. <laughs> Uh, it is kind of funny to think of John, to John Byrne just kind of wants to rewrite Canada's uh, like what Canada means here in the Marvel universe. Like he, you know, John Byrne is just like aggressively saying Canada equals power. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the Sasquatch has Hulk like powers. Yeah. He uh, throws a plane pretty casually. Yeah. He's stronger than Colossus by a fair shot. He seems to have a little more control. Than, I mean, like, we don't get a lot of their origins. I think we now know that Sasquatch has a Hulk-related origin. Um, yeah, that I think that definitely wasn't said for a long time. And I'm not even necessarily sure what all their powers are. Me either. Uh, so, to this day, I don't know. To, yeah, I was a big fan of Alpha Flight in the 80s when John Byrne did that issue, but I've kind of it's kind of faded in my brain. They had, they're very Canadian, right? So you've got, like, your native, your First Nations um, guy, mm-hmm. Which is that's a big part of the Canadian population, shaman. And yeah, then you got he just has he's just like magic. He just has like vague Native American or sorry, First Nations magic powers. Great. And um then you got Snowbird who becomes an owl. Shapeshifter. She can do other things. Okay. Um, but Snowbird is, you know, that is um a Canadian species and also an Anne Murray song. Like Anne Murray, the Canadian um, pop yeah. rock singer, like Snowbird is one of her big um, <laughs> songs. It's kind of very funny that there's a superhero named Songbird. We'd be like having an American hero named like Sweet Home Alabama or something like that. <laughs> um, there might be. And then you've got a Vindicator or Guardian or Major Maple Leaf, whatever. Who's right. And got he's, like a suit. he's sort of, yeah, he's got like a Iron Super- Man-ish suit. Type yeah. thing, he can blast and fly, and then you got Aurora and North Star, which so Aurora is like Northern Lights, and then North Star is just some sort of I don't know why that's Canadian, but Aurora is North Star is super fast, like Quicksilver, right? Aren't they both just super fast? 
Maybe they're both like, but I think Aurora can also fly. No, Snowbird can fly. Yeah, they're both like speedsters. I think they both can fly. So they can fly and I don't they're know. fast? We I don't, don't know. My, my don't take know. on them is they fly fast, both of them. Okay. And, and they then, have the same powers and they hold hands a lot. And then but they're brother and sister, right? Yeah, I just don't hold your hand that much. I wish you would. Well, I'm not um, going to. Uh, Sasquatch can like transform from former NFL linebacker into big Sasquatch dude. I don't know. That's kind of a fun Canadian Canadian the, group here. The design looks great. No question. They all look cool, but I just Alpha Flight looks great. Like I was such a sucker for Alpha Flight in the 80s, man. I really, I really dug them. I, I, just I read quite, more Alpha yeah. Flight than X-Men. <laughs> this is so dumb. We are uh we know how to pick the winners. We're like <laughs> ROM and Alpha Flight. That's where we're going. Um, uh, I, never, I didn't read ROM. <laughs> there's a a fun thing in the battle where Nightcrawler kisses uh, North Star, or is it Aurora? Uh, he kisses somebody, yeah. In the, in the, in the final issue which we're covering, is, which is in the woman issue in twenty one. I don't know. I really should know. I'm going to look it up. Gosh, we're bad at this. Um, um, I know the guy. The uh, North Star is the guy. Okay, who has, so it's Aurora. He's also the. I think he is the first Marvel character to come out as come out as gay. Ooh, lovely. Not, cool. not the first gay character, but I think the first maybe super-powered character to come out as gay. Okay. Um, nice. That was like a big deal at the time. Uh, it might be one of those things where it's like, oh, this other character came out before. Oh, but he, I, got, I he, got, he got married in 2012. Yeah, that's uh, right. First depiction of a same-sex wedding in mainstream comics. That's, that's pretty rad. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's become a bigger deal because of that, I think. Yeah. Um, he's uh, really fun. Uh, okay, it's Aurora. So yeah, Aurora, North Star, brother and sister. Uh, I, I guess Aurora is like beautiful, and uh, she kind of says something about like she has a thought balloon in the in the second issue when they're when they're duking it out, and she's like, oh, I wish my brother was here. He's more of a scrapper. I'm a lover, not a fighter." And then Nightcrawler, <laughs> at that moment, appears and like kind of Bugs Bunny style kisses her on the on the cheek. Yeah, it's very weird. And um, you know what? I kind of I kind of dig it. I uh, I like Nightcrawler. I know it's that's not- kind of. It's you charming. Sure that's not, is it sure it's not assault at this point? I guess it maybe technically is assault, but uh, I don't know. Night, Nightcrawl's got that Errol Flynn-like charm. You know, he's got that Rhett Butler yeah. um, sort of like uh, rapscallion energy that uh, he kind of gets away with it, I think. He does say tally-ho after he kisses her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a little peck on the cheek. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, they're cultures, in a fight. Cancel culture's gone too far when it comes for Nightcrawler for this moment. Okay, that, this is your line in the sand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, X-Men should be allowed to playfully kiss their opponents occasionally in battle. Just sequences. Nightcrawler. If Night, Wolverine Nightcrawler. did it, it would worry me. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's a pretty fun battle. Like, John Byrne is just so good at, or whoever whoever architected this fight, is just so good at action. Um, his art is so easy on the eyes and just really fun. I mean, it, it's filled with energy, I think. It just... I love John Byrne art. Uh, it's my belief that Claremont was pretty free with the fight sequences to John Byrne, to all his artists, but I don't know that for hundred percent sure, but I give John Byrne credit for the layouts. It, it, we talked about this before. I think John Byrne has some of that Ditko S ability to like make the fight scenes. Just you take out the word balloons and these fight scenes are fun to look at. Yeah. Uh, they're not just people punching each other over and over again. Yeah, there's creative uses of either environment or their powers and their facial yeah. expressions are like this whole fight's invested. in a big snowstorm. It just looks cool. 
Also, he this is such a Canadian couple of issues that like the second issue, the fight is in some thing that I've never heard of. The Calgary, hang on, it's in Calgary, right, 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 right there. That's strange. The Calgary Stampede is called the greatest outdoor show on earth. A million people visit the vast recreational complex surrounding the fairground. So it's like some Canadian landmark institution that John Byrne, I assume it's John Byrne's idea, is putting the fight at. I mean, that would be like if you and I wrote a comic and we made everything happen in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, which we might do. Which we might do. You know, go to the North yeah. Street Shopping Center and duke it out for a while. I mean, if you don't have at least one scene set in a tuxedo junction uh, uh, club, <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Is it a good story? <laughs> I don't know. Half of our superheroes went to Rogers Park Junior High. <laughs> and the other half went to Broadview. <laughs> yep. So um, I, almost, I almost said Broadway. That's how uh, long it's been. Broadview. <laughs> Broadview Junior High. And uh, yeah, so this fight goes for a while. And eventually Wolverine says, look, you got they're fighting because they just want me back on the team. I'll go back. And Alpha Flight's like, OK, great. That's all we wanted. They stopped the fight. They 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 roll out an armored truck to contain Wolverine. They're treating him like an animal, like a feral creature. Yeah. Uh, to drag him back to the secret Canadian superhero headquarters. Yeah. And the X Men leave, and they're like, "We well, got to go back for Wolverine. We got it. We got to save him." Uh, well, they they also their plane is escorted out of Canada by like fighter jets. Yeah, by the Canadian Air Force. I mean, the Canada is badass. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they leave, and then Wolverine's in the front seat in the cockpit. Just so, yeah, somehow Wolverine has escaped, and it's a happy ending. Like, he's the X-Men don't need to go rescue him because he's in the plane with yeah. them. <laughs> uh, he goes, the cage, uh, the cage ain't been built that can hold me. And that's it. That's the explanation we get. That's it. He is an uh, escape artist on top of everything else. <laughs> um, he, he also uh, was, like, just sitting in the cockpit. He didn't go back and let the X-Men know. Yeah, and he's by also his seatbelt's not on. Yeah, I mean this he's oh man, Wolverine. What a daredevil. <laughs> but um there is kind of a they they stood by him. Like Wolverine got to overhear Cyclops saying, We're going back for Wolverine. Yeah, like, and even everybody, though that makes it tough. Like yeah, and everybody was like Yes in in for it. I, I I'm a sucker for those moments. I love the all, you know, everyone for the team kind of stuff. And these guys want to go home. Uh, they have not been home in a while, but instead of going home, first they're going to get Wolverine is what they decide. Yep. Uh, but Wolverine's like, nah, I skip on my own because John <laughs> Byrne wants me to never fail. Uh, John Byrne shows up in this comic, right? Yes. And I feel like there's tons of people who look like cameos. There's lots of like people like walking by in the foreground or whatever that get too much focus. There must be people he knows. But John, John Byrne is like having is definitely uh, in it. He's on a date with someone named Darius. Yeah. Darius or Darcy. D-A-R-I-C-E. Hmm. Darius, yeah. Uh, oh, nothing to write. Uh, looks pretty rough outside, John. She says, oh, nothing to write home about, Darius. Did you enjoy New York? You know, I did. And I loved seeing Greece on Broadway. Me too, I. Darius, duck. And that's all we hear from them. Because the battle breaks inside wherever they are. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a high incidence of the creators of the X-Men showing up in their own comics. Yeah, I mean, maybe Cyclops, uh, John Byrne is mad because Cockrum showed up and he hasn't gotten a chance to yet. <laughs> but he did not invite Claremont to dinner with him. He, but he gets like three panels. I mean, he gets a whole row here and almost a yeah, conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, overall, these four issues are fun. Uh, uh, it's 
it's a lot of real estate, like two whole issues to the Sunfire storyline, two whole issues to Canada. Um, you sort of feel like maybe you do one issue for each city, but they're fun. I don't know. They, it was a blast. Yeah, especially that, now that the comic is monthly, like you go through it a little quicker. If this was still bi-monthly, like this had been half a year. Right. Just to do these two stories. And, uh, you know, monthly, it seems so much more doable. I just feel like, you know, with these issues, Claremont and Byrne, they're in the driver's seat. They are very confidently making big moves. I'm excited to see what's next. Yeah. Uh, so next time we'll cover issues 122, 23, 24, and some annual, whatever annual came out around then. I don't know the number of it. Okay, great. Uh, so we're doing four issues, four issues, and then uh, we'll be doing the four issues of Proteus, which we've read one issue of when we had guest uh, uh, Jesse Falcon. Jesse Falcon on. So we talked about it with Jesse Falcon. So we'll reread that issue. That'll be Oof, what a, it's like a good old one. home for us. Yes. Familiar stuff that we've known about for weeks. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, um, big time X-Men fans here, Will and Kevin. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, what do you want to do? You want to do some emails? Take a break and do some emails? Take a break and do some emails. Great. Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, we might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks. In advance from Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. We are back. Uh, this is a Mutants and Mailbag episode, so let's do some mailbag. Great. Uh, we've got a few emails from Dean Spencer. I'm going to go through. Uh, Dean sent us, uh, this is a letter uh, uh, from the letters page of uh, some Spider-Man comic. I don't know which one. I don't know what issue it is. Uh, dear St Stan and John, John Romita does not draw Spider-Man as well as your previous artists. I know you won't print this because since he left Marvel, you've avoided mentioning his name like the plague. Furthermore, you only print the complimentary letters in your letter pages, and I'm getting mighty sick of reading the same old, wow, was that ever a great-ish letter all the time. It is a foregone conclusion that Marvel comics are much better than any other comic publications. But the mere fact that no real criticism appears in your letter pages Seems to me suspicious. And on the rare occasion when a letter of criticism does appear, half a dozen irate fans write you calling the author a loon and a traitor. Getting back to John Romita's art, I must say that although he is a good artist, his predecessor was better at illustrating Spidey because his art created a mood unlike any other artist. And Spidey has suffered without this mood. Sure, Mr. Romita draws nice pictures, but they lack that aura of mystery, of drama that they once had. Sure, the stories are as good, Stan, although I'd like to see more of a, the mystery cops and robbers variety. But Spidey is no longer Spidey. John draws prettier girls and uh, prettier girls and handsomer guys, but that's not the point. He doesn't give Spidey that special artistic flavor, which made it one of the most complete comic books ever put out. I used to favor Spidey even more than the FF. But not anymore. Spidey is number two now. Well, I guess I'm sunk myself as far as getting this printed as you seem so unwilling to print criticism. <laughs> you keep saying that you never get any, but that's ridiculous. Even as good as your mags are. Incidentally, if it'll make you feel any better, your second rate filler, Dr. Strange, is still better than your competition, which you childishly refer to as brand Eck. Uh, so that's a fun letter. Uh, here's Stan's response. 
Brad, old buddy, you've just cut us to the quick. (laughs) You've shocked, staggered, and stunned us. We never expected a true believer like you to write such a thing. And it's transition into Stan's speech. It's hard to not do it in Stan's voice. We thought that you, you above all, would be the first to understand, the first to realize, the first to know that it's spelled ek, not ek. Uh, Two C's, uh, not two H's. (laughs) But to go from the ridiculous to the inane, we admit that it is our policy never to mention artists who have since departed from their halicon haunts of Marvel to seek their fortunes elsewhere. Perhaps we're wrong in so doing, but we feel it isn't fair to mention guys who are no longer here in the bullpen where they can speak for themselves. In fact, that's the reason we don't mention competitive mags by title either. We enjoy kidding around with the name Brand Eck, which can refer to anyone but we'd never use the peerless power of our magnificent mags to knock some other hardworking bunch of writers and artists by name. Now let's all pause to dry our eyes. <laughs> Pretty uh, fun. It's very fun. Uh, it's interesting. Like someone wrote in just greatly preferring Ditko. I don't know what I would have thought at the time. I definitely uh, prefer Ditko a lot now, uh, but I also know I could tell John Reed is great. So it, it'd be hard to be like, and he gets started with a bang. Those first couple of Remita issues are really yeah. good. It'd be, it'd be hard to say like, oh, this comic is not good anymore. Yeah. I mean, also number two is hardly an insult. I know he's complimenting Marvel as much as he's criticizing yeah. it, which um, it's like, oh, uh, you think you're, uh, I don't know. It's like, you think your, your TV show, uh, you think Better Call Saul's good. It's only the second best show I've ever seen. <laughs> like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but thank you for sharing that, Dean. I think that's a fun letter. Yeah. Uh, Dean also sent, as I said, I've got a few from Dean here. Uh, this is a foreword for, for, that John Romita wrote in the front of, he doesn't say, some Marvel masterworks, I guess. I'm just going to read part of it. Uh, There's a bit about how he worked with Stan Lee. Okay. The truth is Stan Lee and I were just one step ahead of the readers, much like a young teacher who stays one ahead of her students. Our plotting sessions varied wildly from two hours to a few minutes snatched between problems in the production department, supply problems or artist emergencies. Lots of plotting sessions ended abruptly with barely a premise or villain agreed upon. Usually Stan would plan further discussion later that day, but we generally settled for hastily shooting thoughts by each other on the run. This was common with us since I worked at the office full time and we could always get together later. Often I was on my own and made decisions on details because I had a fairly thorough knowledge of what Stan would expect. Uh, uh, I'll keep going. This was a double-edged sword I labored under at Marvel. From 1966 on, I was where Stan would reach me and ask me to make changes on artwork, give a young artist a pep talk, or perhaps design a character or two. But that also made me so familiar with Stan's successful approach, which made Marvel the leader it has been, that I would flesh out these plots to his satisfaction. So you see, we didn't exactly plan the flow issue to issue. The magic element was Stan Lee's amazing knack of taking your pencils, often done in deadline haste and not always carefully sequenced, and turning them into a seamless story that had been carefully thought out. Marvel artists and millions of readers have benefited from this knack of his. Uh, and that's basically it. Talks about some that's characters. Interesting. So he's so protective of Stan in that description. Like he seems very careful to give him a lot of credit, but from what he's saying, I could also deduce sounds like Stan was kind of lazy or at least overextended. Yeah. I sort of, especially at the time, by the time John Romita came in, there's no way to know. I do think the first year of Marvel Stan was probably a lot more Mm hands-on and with new books, he was probably more Mm hands-on. 
Like I do think in those early issues of FF and Spider-Man, he was very handsome with Kirby and Ditko. They yeah. probably plotted those guys out together. And I think Ditko and Kirby probably did more than their share of details. Mm-hmm. But I think Stan was in the room for a lot of that planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like, you know, you get five or six issues. And it's like, well, Ditko, he's got it. Yeah. You know, we set up. Well, it's also one of those things like it's it's like a television show. Well, you know this because you live in Hollywood, California. Yeah, I'm a big time Hollywood guy. Uh, they they really spend a lot of money and time on the pilot of a television show because then it's mm-hmm. like the next episode, more of that. Yeah. We've set the tone. We've set the style. We've set some of these character mm-hmm. takes. If you follow that that lead, even if you're not as good as us, it'll still be pretty good because we've created such a nice te- template. Yeah. And I think somewhat like those early issues of FF and Spider-Man are that, right? It's like, I mean, Spider-Man found its feet immediately and FF found its feet pretty quick. There's a certain point where it's just like, yeah, more of that, Kirby, more of that, Ditko. And by the time Ramita came in, there's more books. Stanley was more involved. And Ramita himself was also more involved. He was like the art. Uh, I don't know what his title was, but he was like in charge of the art department, basically. Yeah. Um, like he did redraw things constantly and have to talk to artists and like design characters and make sure everything looked good and help with cover designs and do all that stuff. It's like neither of them had time to sit down and, and plot stuff out. So it makes sense that they would do less of that as time went on. But I also think the books are not as good at that point. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's really, you know, the whatever made Marvel so good, um, it is really hard to pin down. I mean, I, I read so many theories that want to give all the credit to Stan. Obviously not true. But then other ones that want to take everything away from Stan. That can't be true. Um, I mean, I know that it was just a confluence of events at the right time, but. Man, a lot of good stories came out of it. I also and, think and if, from people who really never did as good work later. I also think if nothing changed, like if if Stan and Steve continued to work just as much together and, and like they didn't expand the line, they didn't add titles, none of the artists left. It was just like, all right, Don Heck on Iron Man forever, Kirby on FF forever. Like they mm-hmm. just settled into that. I don't I think the books would have gotten bad too in that realm. I think like yeah they would have run out of ideas, even if like uh, Kirby's still happy here. <laughs> right. Uh, for some, some magic spell that they all just blissfully <laughs> unaware that uh, yeah. Martin Kirby, Goodwin was making yeah. all the money. Um, I think like there's a certain point where it's uh, those books with like a hundred issues of FF. It's impossible to imagine be like another great Galactus level saga. Right. I mean, even after the master planner saga, Dick goes, next few issues weren't as good. I bet he would have had another good storyline, but it would have ebbed and flowed. Um, So some of it would have gotten worse anyway. Some of it was, I think, Marvel overextended. Like, Romita was doing too much. Kirby was doing too much and angry. Stan was doing too much and didn't trust anyone else to do it. Yeah. Uh, And, like, they were also, like, trying to sell the characters to, like, Hollywood to make cartoons and movies and stuff. Yeah. I read some throwaway comment from Stan where he was trying to, you know, uh, where he's trying to hire another writer. Eventually he hires Roy Thomas, but that he like kind of auditioned lots of writers, including Jerry Siegel, like the original Superman writer and like didn't like his stuff and uh, other, other people too. Uh, To some extent that makes sense. He, they're all sort of control freaks in their own way. Probably it's, I think that's goes in hand with like being a very creative person. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just sort of like, no, it's gotta be my way. This yeah. worked, uh, you know, and I, again, like, I think 
Stan is one of those people when like someone did it differently, but did it well, he could recognize that because Ditko wasn't Kirby and he recognized that. And eventually like uh, Jim Steranko came on and yeah. did his own thing completely. Very, very distinct style. And nobody was like, oh, not him. They're like, no, this is good too. This is very different, but it's good. It's clearly good. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, he was uh, probably like Shooter, like Jim Shooter in the 80s, sort of like, it's got to be my way unless it's good enough not to be. Right, yeah. I mean, certainly over Marvel, there, there always seems to be kind of a battle between the Marvel house style, whatever that is at a given time, and the individual voice. But there, there's a long history of somebody with a very individual style, Frank Miller, you know, Chris Claremont, Byrne, breaking through and doing yeah. it their way. Simonson. Yeah, Walt Simonson, I was going to say. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Dean Spencer sent us one more email. This is uh, another uh, image that I'll read to you in a second. But he says, hi, boys. I'm reading Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, the unofficial biography by Tom Scioli. And this is a comic book biography, Well, Okay. Uh, meaning it's comic book format. The medium of comics is used yeah. to tell this biography. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Scioli is a great artist. He's really fun. Uh, I've invested a lot of my time into the history of comics and in their early creators. This is a fascinating insight into the relationship and stories of the big and not so big names of the times, all the way back to the 30s. Definitely give it and Sean Howe's history of Marvel Comics book a read. I've read Sean Howe's. I've not read this, so it looks great to me. He sent a four-panel image um, uh, uh, where somebody named Ravi, I guess, is yelling at Kirby and somebody else, Jim some other artists. It doesn't say. I mean, I'm just seeing four panels. Uh, Robbie, what are you going on about? And this Robbie guy goes, you like working for the competition? There's the door. You're fired. And the non-Jack Kirby artist says, fired? You're really serious? And Robbie says, where do you think you're going? You still got that issue of Captain America to finish. And don't skimp on the details just because you can. Yeah, it must be Joe Simon. So we sat down and got back to work on our last job for Martin. Uh, I guess they're calling him Robbie, but uh, it's Martin Goodman. Hmm. Uh, we were pros. So we, uh, we got to work on our last issue. We were pros. And Kirby says, I noticed Stanley is nowhere to be found today. You think he ratted us out to the boss? And Joe Simon says, who the hell knows, Jack? And then Jack Kirby says, well, I know if I ever see that guy again, I'll fucking kill him. <laughs> uh, he never good, liked Stanley. It's a good teaser for uh, that book. Yeah. Uh, Jack Kirby seems, yeah, certainly seems to have had no respect for Stanley at any time in his career. He, he seems to vary from hating him to simply looking, you know, just to simply disrespecting him. Yeah. Uh, it's very, uh, it's very interesting that he hated him, but worked with him so long. Yeah. Uh, we have another email from Dan Gelati, who is, uh, my remind me how to pronounce his, and hey, remind me how to pronounce his last name. Cause I get it wrong all the time. I think that's yes. right. Gelati. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. he went to high school with me, Danbury yeah. go Hatters. Uh, I've been driving a lot less lately, which is great, but that means less time for podcasts. But I've caught up on your Mutants and Mailbags episode. Uh, these comics had such an impact on me. I consider these my first comics. They weren't. I read all Spidey, Spider-Man Super Stories, Superman and Batman and whatnot. But these comics as they came out had me uh, out, had me old enough to actually read the comics, even though they are wicked dense. I was just reading that Burns recollection is that Claremont was at first jamming in 15-page 
written plots for 17 drawn comic pages. Uh, after Byrne was co-plotting, he claims he reined in some of Claremont's excess. Uh, I recall that X-Men 107 was bought by me from 7-Eleven, and I read it until the cover fell off. My older brother was a collector, and so I could sneak into his room and read back to the earlier issues. The Legion of Superheroes stand-ins captivated me completely, and I loved Cockrum, but I wasn't sad to see the awesome John Byrne show up. The intro of Weapon Alpha was so incredible, mysterious, exciting, and that explosively upward entrance of Weapon Alpha was copied over and over by me for years. Wolverine had a mysterious and cool background. Ooh. <laughs> my point is, for the first time, I'm not rereading along with you because I don't need to. This run is burned into my dang brain, and every time you start to talk about something, I can see it in full form. Sauron in the Savage Land, Arcade's Murder Room, and then Proteus and Dark Phoenix. I can recall instantly so many of Burns' images of Phoenix and Wolverine and Colossus, like him pulling that stump out and the three-panel change. Request, please shout fastball special in each episode where a fastball special happens in the issue you read that month, or make a drinking game out of how many times Banshee says boyo or Nightcrawler says unglopic or Pete <laughs> says Lenin's ghost. Uh, I wonder what it would be like to read these for the first time as an adult, but damn, it was so fun reading as a kid, especially the couple comics leading up to 137. So exciting. Wow. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. It's when you, when you love a comic and you've read it enough, it is, it gets burned in your brain. Uh, we talked about the amazing spider talks episode about the kid who collects Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, and they made a video version of it so you could see the the pages as they talked about them. And yeah. I just listened to the audio and I was like, I don't need the images yeah, in my I brain. I remember them all. Uh, I know exactly what's going on in that panel. They could describe it. And yeah. it, I, I don't feel when, like I'm missing a beat. When you love a comic, I think especially as a kid, like it it does, you, that's, an, that's an intense love. Um, yeah, good, good. I mean, well, well, we are reading them as adults and we do really like them. Yeah, they hold um, up. Yeah. I, I don't know what a younger reader reading them now would think if they'd be too dense and too sort of old fashioned, like they're so wordy and stuff and comics yeah. they aren't. I think they would still come off as good, but I guess I don't know. Um, it, might, it might be like when you watch an, an old movie that's good, you kind of have to put yourself in old movie mindset and yeah. forgive the camera for being more static and, you know, forgive the the pace for being slower and stuff, but yeah. And I wonder if younger readers can do that yet, or if it takes a little bit of time before you're able to do that. I don't know. Damn zoomers. I, I reread Avengers forever recently, which is a Kirby uh comic that he, that Carlos Pacquio drew mm -hmm. because it is a big Kang storyline. Okay. Um, and Kang is uh, talked about with the MCU a lot lately. And I wanted to read this mm -hmm. and I love that book when it came out. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I read it and sort of like Crisis, I was like, oh, these early issues are dense backstory on Kang and Immortus that are just a slog to get through. And then it gets mm. really fun. And then there's like more slog and then it's really fun again. Mm. And I was like, oh, as a kid, this didn't bother me at all. But I think comics have gotten better at the, dealing with the slog mm. of backstory. Anyway, so sometimes that definitely happens. Even when I'm reading these four issues yesterday, there were parts where I'm like uh, a few less boxes of captions, Claremont would would go a while, <laughs> go go ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but overall, I'm I'm digging it. Yeah. And we have an email from Eric Fox Jackson. Uh, hey, you tough Thunderbolt Rosses! I, a lowly milksop, love your show. Thank you for the hours and hours of great content. Uh, Immortal Hulk has been one of the best reads I've had in a while. Thanks for the recommendation. For whatever reason, I now read Bruce Banner's voice and Kevin's voice. Wow, mm -hmm. me. Uh, I come to add the many people 
Uh, oh, I come to add the many people clamoring for Star Wars episodes. If you're interested, I find Dr. Afra to be a good read. Although as a Star Wars fan, I find most of them to be amazing. Other than Darth Vader 2015, which featured a Mon Cal- Calamari headed robot with a lightsaber. Uh, real quick, uh, the original Dr. Afra run is a really fun comic. It just came out maybe like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Sort of a new character in the in the uh, in Marvel Star Wars universe. And she was okay. really fun. And also the they did a Darth Vader series that was a blast. I don't think that was the 2015 one. It was really good. You know, they're Star Wars comics, though. So they're sort of these weird okay. uh, Star Wars stories that sort of take place in the in between the movies or whatever. Yeah. Um, my question is, do you guys Gen- have any general pe- general grievous starts a band or something like that? Yeah, things like that. He, uh, um, my question is, do you guys have any pet peeves when you're reading a comic that a lot of writers, artists tend to do? My answer relates to the comment above. When I read comics, I hear the characters' voices in my head, which means when a word bubble is coming out of a Star Destroyer, I don't know who is talking, and it temporarily <laughs> breaks my immersion. Uh, although I know some people don't have internal, uh, I know some people don't have internal dialogue. Uh, do you have any pet peeves like this? Thanks for all the content, Eric's Fox Jackson. Uh, do you have pet peeves? Are there things like that that bother you? Um, the only thing that comes to mind is when there's two. Uh, I don't like it when there's too much old continuity to deal with. If there's like three panels of summarizing what's gone before, I'm like, just skip it. You know, whereas like yeah. now that you're my sister, after having, you know, dealt with rubber man's, you know, war on the, you know, the Clivids, you know, and don't forget my laser beam now shoots marshmallows. Oh, I could never forget that after what I'm like, oh, can we just get to this? Like sometimes yeah. I drag. I, I get that. I agree with that. I mean, I was sort of just saying that with Avengers Forever. And the whole point of that was a lot of like continuity cleanup. Uh, but I found it like a bit much. Um, it's weird. Like I, I get what he's saying. Like sometimes you see these word balloons coming out like of the Baxter building. And you're like, who's saying it? If it's not the thing, I don't know. Because he's the only one who's got like a unique enough voice that it really stands out. But also that's like a fun thing about comics that you can do that you can't do like on a television show, right? Like you can do an exterior shot of an apartment building and you hear Jerry Seinfeld's voice, you know, who's talking. Yeah. But you can sort of have fun in comics being like, Oh, who's talking or whose caption box is this? Yeah. And you might not know right away. Right. There's a plane in the sky and there's a balloon coming up. It says by the white wolf. What, what, what these peanuts are great. It's like, who's, I have no idea who's saying this. Uh, no, but like for real, like there's like things you can do where it's like, I've definitely read comics where it's like, Oh, there's a caption box at the beginning and you see Batman. So you assume it's Batman. And then you get like, three pages in you're like, Oh, it was Huntress. Who's watching this whole thing. Mm. And there's like a fun thing. It's like, Oh, that's, it sort of showed how she's similar to Batman because of the, what she was thinking. And it, you didn't get that. It was somebody different at first. Like you can have fun with that sort of stuff at yeah. times uh, that you can't do that in a movie or television show uh, or even a book. So you're saying it's not a bug. It's a feature. I think it can be if it's done well. Yeah. I don't think it always is. Uh, I do have pet peeves. I don't love when comic books talk about comic books. This is true of everything. I hate when television shows say this is like a dumb TV show or a movie says that only happens in the movies. And I hate mm-hmm. in comic books are like, this feels like a comic book where I'm just really like, that takes yeah. me so quickly out of the story. Yeah. I mean, but it is a comic book or like that only happens in comic books where they sort of make fun of like a thing that yeah. someone thinks That's is going funny, to happen. Yeah. I'm like, happens yeah, at, this uh, is a comic book. Happens at improv scenes too. Someone would be like, what are you just making it up as you go? Yeah. 
It's like that yeah. at least has the, uh, the, uh, you have the excuse that you made up that line off the top of your head and you panicked and said that. And probably after you said it, you're like, oh, that was a bad thing to say. <laughs> but if you sat down and wrote a script and like, I'm leaving that in, it doesn't come off as clever to me. It comes off. Uh, it just comes off as it's a cop out. Yeah. It's a cop out. And sometimes you'll see it even like, sometimes you'll see it as like that only happens in comic books or you'll see someone say like, this feels like a comic, a bad comic book where it's like, yeah, that doesn't make it not a bad comic book. You acknowledging it. Yeah. So that's even worse. It's one thing when they say, you know, this doesn't happen in our type of stories. Yeah. It's even worse if it's like it did happen. Uh, so that's a real pet peeve of mine in almost all things. What else do I hate? Oh, superpowers. Oh, yeah. You really hate superpowers. Mm-hmm, I hate mm-hmm. secret identities and costumes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there's other things. I can't think of anything else right now. Yeah. Thomas Fransom emails us. Howdy, Sops. Have either of you read Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four run from 2000 to early 2010? I assume Will has not, but you never know. It is arguably my favorite run since Kirby, but I may just be nostalgic for it since that was the run that made me an FF fan. It's got a lot of great stuff in it, including the Council of Reeds, some fun Doom stuff, and a complicated and confusing universe and reality-spanning plot that threatens all of existence. It also features Spider-Man joining the team for a bit. If you've read it, what do you think? Uh, any chance you've read that, Will? Not a one. Uh, I read it, uh, and I'm lukewarm on it. Um, Ooh, unlike, hot, Thomas, hot though, uh, unlike Thomas, though, unlike Thomas, I get it. Like, if that's the first FF comic you read, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, for me, that was Byrne. Right. John Byrne's FF feels like my FF almost more than the Kirby stuff. Yes, me too. Because I read it first. Uh, and then I liked, like, Mark Wade's run a lot as well later on. Uh, I didn't hate Jonathan Hickman's run or anything, but I didn't get swept up in it. I found, I find his writing to be plot first character second, like the character stuff is in there, but it, um, it feels like it is just there in between these plot elements and it doesn't get in the way where I feel like the stuff I really enjoy where, uh, like, and I think this is true of burn. It feels, it feels like the plots come from a character thing. It's like, Oh, I want to explore this character beat. What's a plot that could do that? That might not be true, but it feels like that often. Like, what's an interesting predicament to put Reed in versus, oh, here's a cool galaxy plot. I wonder what Reed would say here. It's like just a slight difference. And that's what it always felt like. Uh, Like, there's a a segment of that comic book. Here's a big spoiler where uh, Johnny Storm gets stuck in the negative zone for a long time. Okay. They think he's dead and he's trapped in there. And he has to, like, basically survive on his own in pretty horrible circumstances. And when he comes back, there's like a, a beat where it feels like, Oh, he's been changed by this. Mm. Like he was in there a long time on his own. He thought he'd never see his family again or his friends again. He like, he basically had to kill monsters constantly or whatever. And, and it's like, Oh, like it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Johnny storm. And like, there's a couple lines towards it, but like, otherwise it doesn't feel like you could, you needed that storyline to write whatever Johnny Storm did afterwards in the book. Mm. And so I was like, Oh, it feels like that's a missed opportunity. Like, why did you put him in there? If you didn't want to explore this thing with Johnny. Uh, and that's sort of my problem with Johnny and Hickman. Like he's doing the X-Men comics now and they're really fun and I don't care about those characters as much. So I think it doesn't bother me as much, but there's like moments of like really cool character stuff. Uh, like um, there's a, there's a second Wolverine. Well, uh, who's a clone of uh, Logan. Okay. And for a while, it's going to such a comic book sentence coming out of my mouth. Uh, Wolverine was dead 
And okay. so Laura uh, became the new Wolverine. So she was Wolverine and she had her own title. And then Logan came back and became Wolverine again. And there's some moment where they're like, uh, they call her X-23, which is like her name pre-Wolverine. They're like, X-23, we need you to do this mission. She's like, my name's Wolverine. Okay. And they show like Logan sort of nod going, yeah, that's right. You tell him, girl. <laughs> like he's like, yeah, your name's Wolverine too. I don't have a problem with that. And it's like a cool little moment of like her standing up for that she's moved past this old code name and, and Logan being okay with it. Great yeah. little aside. It has no impact on anything else that ever happens in any of the stories. Okay. It's like, I want more of that and less of this sort of epic stuff generally in my comics. Uh, so that's my take on it, Thomas. But I, lots of people love that run. It's a very popular run. It is probably the most popular FF run since Burn. Um, all right. I, and I knew none of it. Um, Adam Gardner asked us about Lone Wolf and Cub. We mentioned it briefly, Will. Do you remember any thoughts on Lone Wolf and Cub? Um, you know what? I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I, Lone Wolf and Cub showed up like in the late 80s in comic book shops with the kind of being uh, advocated by Frank Miller as a great comic mm-hmm. when Frank Miller was like at the absolute top of his fame and reputation. So I bought a couple issues and I really did enjoy it, but I, I, I don't know for whatever reason I stopped reading it, but it's a Japanese comic about, um, it's basically the Mandalorian. It's like a samurai is carrying around a kid, a baby, and he's like doing his samurai stuff while protecting the kid. Yeah. I, I mean, I read one volume of it and I enjoyed it and thought it was beautiful, but I never, for whatever reason, looked for a second volume. Yeah. It definitely wasn't like the sort of serial storytelling that draws you in to keep reading it because it's sort of like each story is its own thing or at least the early volume was it's sort of like Yusaji Ojimbo in that sense another samurai book that I love but the continuing story of that is pretty non-existent so I'll often like read a bunch and then I just won't buy a bunch and not read them for a while and I'll sit on my shelf and then I'll just binge read them all but they just feel like oh another adventure uh, and I felt like that about uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Apparently, it's on Comicsology Unlimited, and he's just burning through it and loving it. Yeah, um, I mean, it's got a great reputation. Everybody, everybody loves it. I loved the one volume I read. I just didn't read more. I believe that Jerry Duggan, comic book writer of Deadpool, who met Steve Ditko and exchanged handwritten letters with Steve Ditko for years, that they mm-hmm. talked about Lone Wolf and Cub. I think Jerry recommended it to Ditko, and Ditko read it and was like, "Ooh, these are really good." I mean, that's crazy yeah. to be able to recommend something to Steve Ditko and be like, you're like, oh, I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. I guess it makes sense. Like, it's not like he's probably read a ton of comics, but yeah, that's like such an influential one. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. That's a cool story. It's it. You can, it, it's buried in Jerry Duggan's Twitter feed somewhere. Um, uh, we got time for one or two more. I do. Yeah. I'm not doing anything. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'll <laughs> hang on. Uh, here's one from Joe. Uh, hello, Kapow, Kevin, and Wheat Cake Will Hines. Oh, nice. And the rest of the Screw It Bullpen, whoever they are. <laughs> uh, have you thought about covering the beginnings of the Golden Age comics, such as early detective comics or action comics? I'd like to hear your take on the 1940s comics, their history, their context, and how they hold up today. I think you guys would be the best fit to cover those books since you are the only two people in the world who have a podcast and talk about anything ever. <laughs> Thanks, Joe, from the Merry Milksop Marching Society. <laughs> uh, he's, really, he's really up on our inside jokes. I love it. He's, he's, he, he caught my, uh, our reference to Ditko creating Sunfire. <laughs> um, 
uh, I think that's a cool idea. Yeah, um, we haven't talked about it. We, we, I haven't read too many of those, and I, me neither. And I'm not that much of an expert on the context. A little bit, yes, but we would probably be not so good at. We would probably not be so good at being the authorities to talk about what the context was. Exactly. Well, I, I think what we'd be good at though is sort of highlighting what's good about them and making fun of what's silly about them. Yeah, we would be good at that. Like, um, uh, I think like we were really good about that with the old Marvel stuff. Like we don't just like, oh, this is bad because it's old or this is just good because it's classic. I guess we'd be we good. both those things pretty easily. We'd be good. And I think any modern comics reader would be able to do this to sort of see what stuck. It's like, oh, this feels like a type of thing that still happens in comics. And like, oh, this type of thing never happens anymore, you know, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the 1940s comics are so old. Uh, and comics were so different back then. It, I've never read. I, I think I've read the first Detective Comics and the first Action Comics in like a reprint or whatever. Yeah, uh, but I don't think I've read beyond that. I think yeah, same with me. I think I read like the first Captain America Action Comics number one, Detective Comics whatever it is twenty seven, where Batman was mm-hmm. introduced. I think I also read Batman number one. Um, yeah, I've read like yeah. seven or eight. Really, I've read a far more Silver Age stuff. And even that I haven't read that much of. Like six, uh, 60s stuff. Yeah. Um, post Barry Allen, Flash, mm-hmm. Batman and Superman and Flash, oh, whoever. I read more of that stuff. It'd be an interesting thing to do. It's something something I would consider doing like like a season, like let's read the first 10 issues of Action Comics or whatever. Yeah. Um, or first five issues or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, It'd be interesting to to see what we thought of those. I remember reading the first because those were such a huge hit, right? Action Comics number one, yeah, it was like a phenomenon. And so was Detective Comics. Like those were both gangbusters hits. It'd be Um, interesting to read those, knowing that. What I my vague memory of reading Action Comics number one is that they really laid out a lot of the Superman mythology in that first issue that stayed. Like it, it is, I mean, he doesn't fly yet. He just jumps over buildings. Yeah. But daily, the daily planet is there and Lois Lane is there. Are they named that yet? I know some of that stuff comes from the radio show. Um, I believe Lois Lane is named. Gosh, I forget. I think like Jimmy yeah. Olsen is not there, but like Clark Kent is there. Um, I, I remember being impressed at how many of the building blocks were in place right away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it would be interesting to read that or just even like read 10 issues or five issues and then skip ahead 10 years and read five more issues and skip ahead another 10 years or something like that. Uh, or even two or three issues, just sort of see like how it's evolving through the decades. Yeah. Uh, I do think we'd be good at it. Well, I disagree with you. I don't think we'd be great at the context of what was going on at the time in the forties, but I think we'd be good at the context of like, who's this, this, who's this Hitler guy we'd say to each other. Uh, this con- this the context of this comic being so it's such an impactful book, yeah, that it changed everything around it. I think we'd be good at that. Okay, um, we have another similar one to that. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, right here. Brad Page emails. I'm a new listener. Just discovered your show thanks to your recent appearance on the Amazing Spider Talk show. Mm. I'm really enjoying it. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Would love to hear you guys tackle the Silver and Bronze Age, Daredevil, and the Avengers from the same period. I grew up on those books, and I'm planning a reread of both series soon. I'm in the middle of a Captain America reread and just started the Avengers. Nothing like rereading your old comics. The smell of old newsprint is enough to take you back. Thanks, Brad. I sort of think the same thing. It's like, it'd be interesting to read those early 
Iron Man, Avengers, um, Daredevil stories. I've never read, I've read some of the Avengers, but that's basically it. Yeah. I've read very little of that stuff. Um, I think I read like the first year. I read, maybe I have one essential of Avengers. I read an essentials worth of Avengers, but not Cap, not Iron Man, not definitely not Daredevil. Yeah. I, I've um, not re- I did not read the early Daredevils or Iron Man. When we started this podcast, we mostly focused on comics that you and I had both read. Yeah. Um, and loved. And then we sort of veered into just comics I liked that I was forcing mm-hmm. you to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we'll go back to things we both read. And now we're doing something neither of us have read with the X-Men. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, no, it's possible. It, it, it's within the realm of these are influential comics that affected things um, that we could read. I mean, I'd also be very interested in reading the Kirby Thor issues, which I hear great things about. Let's just end there. We got four. <laughs> this one is not an email to us. Okay. Uh, I've okay, answered okay. this one in the box. So do we have do we have an email that we have left? Are we doing we another got episode? Four or five. Next? We got four or five left. All right, so we'll do an episode next week. We'll do a mutants and mailbag next week. We're just gonna do the week by week until we catch up. Yeah. Uh, uh so we've got four or five emails. I bet we'll get a couple more off this scintillating episode. Probably then, uh, so many hot takes. Uh and then we will try to get through them all next week. And then we'll probably at some point we'll take a few weeks off. And set up for the next season, which yeah, we're getting that ready. We're getting that ready as we speak. So um, uh yeah, that's it. So that's mutants and mailbags, guys. Uh you can email us at screwitcomics at gmail. We have a Twitter account, screw it comics, and an Instagram, screw it comics. Please check those out. Yeah. One way to help us catch up is if we stop mentioning that email address <laughs> or only mentioning at the very end of the episode where we it really seems bury like we finished it. We really a bury yeah. it. Yeah. That'll uh, help us catch up on our emails. Uh, please email us. We love getting emails. And um, we'll see you next episode. All right, bye everyone. Bye. Screw it, screw it. Just gonna talk about comics. Hi, Adam Peacock from My Neighbors Are Dead here. Each week on My Neighbors Are Dead, I talk to the tertiary characters real and imagined from your favorite horror films. But this summer, we're doing something different. We are taking you to the northern woods of Michigan, all the way up to Whitlow Lake, to bring you the original tale of the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. We're bringing back some fan favorites of the show as we try to piece together through interviews with survivors, witnesses, and with any luck, the killer Chad himself. We're going to try to piece together exactly what the hell happened up there at Camp Willow Lake. It starts June 22nd and it runs all summer long. That's the My Neighbors Are Dead Summer Camp Massacre. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.